Today's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 28, so I'll give you a minute to find that in your Bibles. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided, some sides with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from the worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not let himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from the heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia where they went and preached the word in Persia and they went down to Italia. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there for a long time with the disciples. Well, thank you, Evan, for reading so well. Good on you. And um, 
It's good to be back. Narelle and I were away on holidays, and that's why I've got facial fuzz. It's coming off tomorrow. I lost a bet with Sally. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, but let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you'd help us to love increasingly the things that you love and uh, let go of the things that you don't. May what's important to you be important to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to therefore endure in ministry, to keep going, and in our Christian lives and in our confidence in Jesus, through whatever hardships and joys you give us, and then enter the kingdom of God. Amen. Okay, so keep open, Acts 14. You need to have your eyeballs on that. Here is one of the most action-packed parts of the Bible. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. You'll see that on the map there. Um, you can see their route. You've gone from Antioch across to Cyprus, Cyprus and then to another Antioch up, up the top uh, in Pisidia. That's Pisidian Antioch. Um, that's where you got to last week. And this chapter ca uh, covers the second half of the journey, this time into the region of Galatia, the Roman province of Galatia, and to the three Galatian towns, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, before returning back home to Antioch. Okay, the trip lasts two years, AD 46 to 48. Now, to set the context, before this trip in AD 45, there were no Christian congregations in Asia Minor, which is that big area we call Turkey today. No Christian congregations there. And yet within only 10 years, there will be churches in every major city. And Paul will say, there's no new place to work left for him in those regions. So this is a time of massive missionary expansion undertaken by God. And so now we're in Acts 14 because at the end of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas report back to the original church in Antioch and let's look at what they say in verse 26. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So in Acts 14, we see God in action. This is a chapter of God opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, if you hadn't been told that, is that what you'd have thought this chapter really was about? We have a picture here of how God opens the door of faith, how he sets an opportunity before the Gentiles. It's very different to what we may expect because if God was really opening a door of faith for people, then wouldn't we expect things to go well? Wouldn't we ex expect that there'd only be success for things to come together? There'd be no real difficulties. We wouldn't expect there to be all sorts of hostility and opposition and yet what we find in Acts 14 is actually very different to our expectations. Last week, Paul and Barnabas were run out of Antioch. This week, Paul and Barnabas are plotted against and run out of Iconium, and then Paul is stoned and left for dead in Lystra. And that is the picture of God opening the doors of faith through his servants. Is that your picture? of how God works. 
Okay, let me take you to a passage, 2 Timothy chapter three, it's up on the screen. Because one of the young men who came to faith in Lystra was Timothy. And later in life, the Apostle Paul would write to Timothy and remind him of that first visit. And in chapter three, verse 10, he says, you, however, know all about my life and my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, and about my persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. And yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And now I want you to see in verse 12, he draws the significance for us from what he's encountered. He said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, Paul's particular sufferings here in Acts 14, he takes and now applies outward to all Christian people. Now, is that your picture of the Lord opening up a door of opportunity? The apostle sees his sufferings in Acts 14 as prophetic for how God opens doors of faith to people. Is that your picture of how God's working through you or people here? Um, I recall a very sad conversation I had as pastor with someone who wanted to leave the faith. Incredibly sad. And our conversation was this person's last ditch try. What became clear was that this person had a belief that when you became a Christian, all your problems would be over. Well, that sort of rose-colored view can be had of evangelism and church planting as well. With God on our side, nothing that God does through us should ever be hard. We should only encounter success. And yet the picture of Christian ministry in Acts 14 is almost the complete opposite, isn't it? Now you remember that um, Paul and Barnabas had been coming from Antioch in Pisidia, massive city. But now all the intelligentsia, all the city officials, all the leading men and politicians and networkers of that city have rallied against Christianity and the gospel and yet the Christians there remain joyful and full of the Holy Spirit, but Paul and Barnabas, they're run out of town. What do you do when you've been run out of the most influential city of the province for preaching Christ faithfully? What do you do when you're the apostle to the Gentiles? What do you do? Do you go back to your home base, kind of lick your wounds, retreat to a safe position, um, rewrite your message, reframe it? leave the judgment bits out, the repentance bits out, the sin bits out, what, what do you do? Well, what they do is to take courage into their hands. They do what's unsafe. They do what's massively risky, unconventional. And there are three episodes and I want to quickly look at each and at each one I want, to, um, want you to see the risk of faith, the risk of faith. The first one, longest one, uh, is in verses one to seven at Iconium. If you look, you'll see that what they do is the same thing they did at Antioch. They enter the synagogue. So Jews in the Roman world are scattered around the Roman world. They're not just in Judea. And there's synagogues in different cities. So it was Paul's habit first to begin there. So he goes to the synagogue and he preaches. And he does as he's done again, again, and again. And Luke emphasizes their speaking ministry. Verse one, they spoke so effectively 
Verse three, they spoke boldly for the Lord. Verse three, they spoke a message of God's grace. And all this is effective because this is the way that people are saved. That, that is the way that the Lord Jesus brings people from death to life. It's through the preaching of the gospel. There's three verses on persistent preaching. But now how many verses does it take for persecution to break out? One, verse two. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So that in verse five, we see Jews and Gentiles, including their leaders, plotting together against Paul and Barnabas to mistreat them and to stone them. So with the preaching of the gospel, the old lines of division get redrawn. No longer is it Jew against Gentile. No, no, no. Now the Jews and Gentiles are united either for or against the news of Jesus. Jesus becomes the great line of division. So that, verse one, a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, but verse two, a great number of Jews and Gentiles oppose the gospel and those who believe. And because of this, verse three, Paul and Barnabas didn't flee. They stayed. They stayed there speaking boldly for the Lord, or even better, speaking boldly in reliance upon the Lord because it was the Lord who strengthened them to keep speaking. And they did many miraculous signs and wonders, but even so, verse four, the people of the city were divided. Now, what's going on here? Well, first of all, God is showing stunning and remarkable kindness to the people of Iconium. He sends them apostles to preach the good news. He confirms the apostles' message of grace with miraculous signs and wonders. And then he gives strength to Paul and Barnabas so that when the, the heat intensifies, they don't run away. They stand up and they keep speaking boldly and openly. Obviously, they're facing in, in, intimidation. Otherwise, why would you need to be bold? The gospel they're preaching is the word of God's grace. The Iconians don't deserve it. God, in his kindness, his grace, his mercy, is offering them forgiveness of sins, inheritance of eternal life, hope of resurrection glory, and he still does this, doesn't he, through his message of grace. But whenever the gospel is preached, it's divisive. So God's showing them remarkable grace. The gospel he's preaching is the word of grace, and yet it's divisive. To some, it's like life-giving oxygen. They hear it, and it's like... Life enters them, but for other people, it's like breathing in the noxious fumes of cyanide. Because the gospel and the preaching of the gospel always has a paradoxical effect. It always brings unity and it always brings division. Whenever God reveals his son in the preaching of the gospel, it does this, it creates division. It did so in the life and preaching of Jesus, it did in the life and preaching of the apostles, and it will continue to do so in our lives. The Bible is very realistic about this. And we know division is terrible. Uh, living in a divided community hurts. That's why kids celebrate Harmony Day, right? Because division is painful. But see what they're being divided over, a message of grace. 
And this then therefore reveals the terrible perversity of our hearts. The very news of Jesus that should unite people who, do, you know, the, the news that Christ died for all people, that we all have access to the Father through the one spirit, through the one means, that very unifying message is the one that creates division. But division doesn't show that Paul and Barnabas's ministry was defective. I want you to see that. Um, it would be wrong to say that if they had only been more gracious or more relevant or done more miracles, then all the opposition would have dissolved. That is not the case. It's the very message of grace available through Jesus which either opens people's hearts or closes them and calcifies them because it's so offensive. And so Paul and Barnabas keep preaching. And they don't run away. They stay there until the opposition mounts to the point of physical violence and danger to their lives. One commentator said, they may have been born again, but they weren't born yesterday. <laughs> right? They realized the value of moving on so as to preach elsewhere so that God would keep on opening up more doors. Verse seven. So they flee to the frontier town of Lystra. Now Lystra is a Roman backwater. It was a, full of uneducated, illiterate pagan people, by which I mean they have no biblical knowledge at all, no knowledge of the God of the Bible. So for the first time, Paul and Barnabas don't go to the synagogue, presumably because there, there isn't one. And that means that Paul can't preach how he did back in Antioch or Iconium, where he builds on what people already knew from the scriptures already. Here he had not only to begin before that, but he has to also unteach many false views about God. Now this is relevant for us because increasingly we're surrounded by people who don't know a thing about God. What was it, 18 years ago, Norella and I moved to Adelaide and we enrolled our kids in Black Forest Primary School, local school, and it staggered me that it had been 20 years since there was any Christian input at all into that school. So then I, rallied and I got permission eventually to run an Easter presentation. Mind you, it was in the second half of lunchtime, the kids had to have a sign note from their parents in their hand to get in the door, but still two thirds of the school turned up, praise God. But I discovered to my shock that many of the kids did not know that Jesus died on a cross. Not even some of the parents knew that he died and rose again. Our society is increasingly ignorant about even the basics of Christianity. Many people know nothing. And that was 18 years ago. We've drifted so far from our Christian roots that our society is increasingly no longer a post-Christian society, but a pre-Christian society. Right. So what's brilliant about verses eight to 20 is that we get to listen in on how Paul explains the message to people who know nothing of the Bible and nothing of God. And how it happens is that as Paul is speaking the good news, he looks down and he sees a lame man looking up at him and he sees that the man has been listening and that the man has faith to be healed and so Paul heals him and up he gets. It's a brilliant moment. If you were there at the CMS Summer Conference, you'll have heard from um, Tamara um, Filmer, who was in Nepal, uh, Gary Filmer's niece, and um, she was there and she referred to how in the frontier towns where, where no knowledge of God was, 
uh, often accompanying the preaching of the gospel occurred miracles. But back in the main uh, capitals where you know, people have been Christians for many, many years, few, many, much fewer miracles. Um, and then that created crises because people thought, did I have, not have enough faith and the pastors had to do right teaching? And, but where the gospel fronts new areas, often it's accompanied by miracles. Well, same here. Um, up this man gets. The details of, of the story of this um, lame man getting, getting healed are very similar with the miracle done by Peter back in Acts chapter three. Okay, you might remember that song from Sunday school. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way held out his palms, asked them for arms. This is what Peter did say, silver, okay, etc. Okay, well, in both cases, the, the man was lame from birth. In both cases, the apostle looked directly at him. In both accounts, we're told he was healed immediately, even though he'd never walked before in his life. So there's physical reconstitution of muscles going on. In both cases, he jumped straight up. And the details are repeated deliberately in this retelling so that anyone reading it will say, Paul is as much an an apostle as was Peter and that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is as much a ministry of the risen Jesus as was Peter's to the Jews. But the big difference between them is what comes next. When Peter did his miracle, he's persecuted by the Jewish leaders. When Paul did his miracle, you wouldn't have guessed it, people started worshipping him. This is not the desired outcome of an evangelist, right? They, des- they start worshipping him as if he's God. Oh no, don't do that. You know, how do I deal with this? People come down, they're shouting in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. They call Barnabas Zeus, Paul they call Hermes. The priest just outside the city comes in, brings a bull, wants to start offering sacrifices to them. Whoa, you know, this is out of control. What's happening? Now, No one, of course, has ever made the same mistake of me. Uh, People haven't started worshipping me when I've started doing things, but um, you know. So what's going on? As we might guess, there's a story behind the story. There was a local legend that had been recorded 50 years earlier by a Latin poet named Ovid of something that happened in the area, that the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, had once visited that area, supposedly, in human form, seeking shelter, and after knocking on 1,000 doors and at every door being turned away, finally they're granted shelter and food by a poor couple living in a tiny cottage outside the town. According to the legend, that couple were rewarded, their cottage became the temple to Zeus and Hermes, and they then watched while Zeus and Hermes destroyed through flood and fire the 1,000 homes they'd been turned away from. Now, That poem was written 50 years earlier in this area. If that was the local legend, you can understand that when people saw this miracle, they'd never seen one like it, they jumped to the conclusion, Zeus and Hermes have visited them again, and they don't want to make the same mistake, right? (laughs) So when the priest of Zeus comes from the site where this poor people's house was meant to be, and they come in to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, What do Paul and Barnabas do? Okay, they have to spring into action. They physically try and put a stop (laughs) to what's going on. Why do they do that? You know, if they'd have wanted glory for themselves, here was their chance. Oh, aren't we wonderful? You know, Um, except we remember what happened to Herod (laughs) when he accepted praise from the crowd as being a son of God and then he was struck down and eaten with worms and died. Hmm. 
Well, why do they stop it? Because if they valued this religion for its ancient and genuine expression, they'd have let it go on, wouldn't they? But they don't. Here is the second time where the gospel comes into direct contact with non-Christian religion. The first was in Acts 17 in Athens. But here's the first time when it comes into contact with pagan non-Christian religion, that is religion which knows nothing of the biblical God. And Paul and Barnabas's reaction teaches us how to think of non-Christian religions. Now, we need to see this, don't we? We live in a country where honoring our first people and their beliefs is sacrosanct. And we live in a pluralistic country, don't we? Where you can't really say that what someone believes is wrong. Well, here Paul and Barnabas show us what they think of non-Christian religion. By their reaction, they say they are not value-neutral exercises. They are not a harmless expression of a universal human tendency. They are futile. They are blasphemous indeed. Why? Because it's robbing glory from the true and living God. What was God's first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. And of course, the God of Israel is the God of the world. He made the world, indeed. And the second You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Isaiah chapter 42 verse eight. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. He will not do it. It's not as if God's glory is something that he's happy to share around amongst the pantheon of gods. You know, it's okay if people worship you. He says, I won't do it. Paul and Barnabas, by their reaction, show they have no respect for how ancient or well-developed these religions are. They are vain, they are empty, and, and they are eternally damning because they turn people away from the living God, whereas the aim of the gospel, verse 15, is to turn people from what cannot save them, from what cannot bring them forgiveness and light and transforming grace, and turn them to the living God through the salvation that's found in God's son, Jesus. And what's so striking is that now we see Paul and Barnabas' true motivation for mission. It's not their desire for results or numbers. It's not even their love for people of whom they've never met. What burns deep in their hearts is a love and a zeal for the glory of the living God. And they cannot bear it when his name is soiled. And so they're filled with a jealousy that God might be treated as God, that his name would be treated as holy. It's like a personal injury to them when they see God, the living God, dishonored, and that's why they do this incredibly dangerous thing. Now, it's it's right, of course, that we be nervous of religious fanaticism because so often religious fanaticism ends in violence. That's evil. But we also have to remember that zeal, non-violent zeal, for the name and the glory of the living God is the defining character of all who belong to the living God. You will remember that the first thing that Jesus taught his disciples to pray for was that God's name would be hallowed. 
And you'll remember that, um, you know, when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, um, his disciples recalled Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was zealous. And so Paul and Barnabas, therefore, rush out and they shout and they deliver the first sermon ever spoken to out-and-out pagans with no knowledge of the scripture or, or of Jesus Christ. They had been speaking about Jesus, but now they, they, in the other towns, now they go back to the basics, to God himself, to the living God who made heaven and, and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And, and then they say, now the way is open to turn to him. And with the coming of Jesus, of course, this is something new. Paul says, in the past, God let the nations go their own way. Now, when you read that, first of all, you might, it might sound like, in the past, God let the nations off, but now he's somehow become more strict. That's not what it says, or not what it means. When it says, in the past, God let the nations go their own way, going their own way means God just let them continue on being stuck in idolatry. But now with the coming of Jesus, who has died for the nations, who is the savior of the world, now there is good news. God is opening up to the nations the possibility of relationship with himself and true worship of the living God. This therefore means that God is being incredibly gracious. Here is a God who has revealed himself, even though he hadn't given these people the scriptures as he'd done for the Jews. Nevertheless, God, Paul says, God has not left you without testimony. He has shown you kindness, you know, by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food. That God is full of goodness. He doesn't just satisfy your stomachs, he fills your hearts with joy. The true and living God is a God of generosity and a God of grace, and he's saying, you've experienced it. He loves to give good gifts to everyone he's made. He is sovereign and yet involved. He is almighty yet wanting a relationship with us. And the clear implication is, this is the God whom you should worship. And yet, here's a testimony to the idolatry of the human heart that even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And at this point, Paul's message is cut short. Undoubtedly, he would have gone on to speak of Jesus and the cross, and the resurrection and his return uh, that we need to get ready for. But he doesn't say it because just at that moment, would you believe it, Jews from Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, 160 kilometers away, now arrive and they rally the crowd and they win the crowd over and in a monumental moment of fickleness, the crowd stone Paul and drag him outside the city. This was the bloke they were about to worship just a moment ago. They stone him, thinking he's dead, and he's not, but he's almost dead. It could only be with God's help that he made it back into the city, and the next day, he and Barnabas leave for Derby. That's another 90 kilometers away that the almost dead man has to go. But there he preaches and he preaches the good news and he wins over a large number of people in that city. It's probably at this time that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, though we are struck down, we are not destroyed. 
Well, that's his time in Galatia. It's hardly beer and Skittles, is it? Is that how we would say that God opens the door of faith to people? You know, even in his old age, Paul would remember the persecutions he had endured in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And he'd write about it. It was hard. One commentator said, I once saw the track of a bleeding hair across the snow, and that was Paul's track across Europe. Only one year after this visit, Paul would write to the churches he founded in Galatia and he would remind them, I myself bear in my body the marks of Jesus, the scars, and the emotional scars. Paul's sufferings, which God used to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. Well, then very importantly in verses 21 to 28, after two years of traveling, he still needed to do one more thing to ensure that the door of faith stayed open. They preached the good news in that city and they won a large number of disciples and then they returned. They returned. Can you believe it? After what they'd endured, in verse 21, he returns to to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, and says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders for them in each church, and with their prayer and fasting, commit them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. So why does Paul return? Well, he returns because he's not just going on mission trips, he returns because he's planting churches. The fruit of gospel ministry is local congregations, bodies of believers whose faith is alive. But after all the opposition, how could the churches possibly survive? They were new, they were fragile, they're subject to vicious physical persecution. How can Paul leave them on their own? Surely he needs to, what, establish a head office or something. What would you do? Well, I want you to see that before he moves on and returns back from whence he came, he returns to them and he gives them three gifts, three foundations upon which their faith will thrive and their hope will grow. The first is the apostles' teaching. He strengthened the disciples, verse 21, and encouraged them to remain true to the faith, not just any faith, not just their subjective feelings, the faith, which refers to a set body of teaching. Elsewhere in the pastorals, it's called the good deposit, the tradition. Here is the faith, a body, a recognizable, definable body of teaching, that body of belief centering on Jesus Christ, his death for our sins, his resurrection to glorious Lord, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' expected return in judgment and salvation. These are the non-negotiables a definite body of teaching, and the apostles return to encourage um, the church to remain true to this. So that's the first part of the apostles' teaching. Now, then he teaches them. What does the apostle say to this church confronting persecutions? Well, he gives them an encouragement to remain true, and then he gives a note of warning. He says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you could pick out a verse which summarized this chapter, this would be it. Because there are two sides to following Jesus. On the one hand, God's opened the door to his kingdom through Jesus, but on the other hand, 
the normal route for the follower of Jesus in our lives is that of hardship and difficulty and setbacks and sorrows. Not just one or two, but many setbacks. Why so? Because if the gospel that we hold dear and defines us and that we share, if that gospel divides and we remain true to that message, then you cannot avoid it. We must go through these hardships before entering the kingdom of God. And Paul's not just speaking about himself. In verse two, it was the brothers in Iconium who suffered, not just Paul. In verse 20, it could be read when he's being stoned that the believers formed a protective ring around Paul after he'd passed out because the danger was still real. If we belong to Jesus, these sufferings can't be bypassed because it's through them that God will bring us into heaven. Every single one of us faces sorrows and difficulties. Uh, if you ever took the time to speak to Rhonda Rounsfield, she may have told you this. She had a, a strong faith but a difficult life. For some, sufferings are an opportunity for self-pity and bitterness, an opportunity to throw in the towel, to discard your faith. For them, those sufferings will take you to hell. But for others, the same sufferings take us to heaven, and so he urges us to remain true to the faith and warns the Christians there about what we must go through. This is the apostolic teaching. He leaves it to them as a gift. Secondly, he appoints elders in each town to look after the church. It's significant there's not just one elder, it's several. And it's significant that the word appoint means to put up one's hand for a vote and to put one's hand down, as in the laying on of hands. So it's likely the elders were jointly chosen by the congregation, but then they were endorsed by Paul. And in the pastoral epistles, they had to satisfy three things to qualify as an elder. They had to have demonstrable moral integrity. They had to be loyal to the apostolic teaching. They had to have the ability to teach. So to make sure the door stays open, Paul gifts them with apostolic teaching, elders whom he appoints, and then lastly and most importantly, he entrusts them to the protection of the Lord. This is not just him signing off, you know, kind regards, Apostle Paul. He prays and he commits them to the Lord. The most important thing that we can say about the church is that it is created by God and it is sustained by God and it is ruled by God. It is true for every congregation, every body of believers. And humanly speaking, it's just as absurd to think that the church can exist without God's protection as it was to think the churches in Paul's day could exist without God's protection. Ultimately, their protection and our protection does not come through legal frameworks or through voting blocks at Synod or through even um, a Trinity network or something like that. The gospel moves forward through tribulation and as the gospel is preached, as Christians strengthen one another and endure hardship together for the sake of the kingdom of God, God grows his church. That is what it is for God to open the door of faith. It's risky, it's unsafe, it's frightening. But without it, we wouldn't exist. How did the gospel come to us? Well, it first came to the first colony in Australia in Sydney Cove 
because there was an evangelical minister named Richard Johnson who came. The liberal um, chaplains of, 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 or the liberal clergy in, in England wouldn't come. Richard Johnson was a missionary, really, by heart, so he said, yes, I'll come. He came. He had such a hard time and such a squabble disagreement, it was persecuted, really, by the governor, that whilst all the other um, buildings were being built by convicts around Sydney Cove, he had to live in a thatched hut in the mud on the, ba on the shores of um, Sydney Harbour. Um, and he lived there for a couple of years like that. His wife and newborn child died there because the conditions were so awful. He had, was only allowed to run church once at 6am. Um, the governor only permitted that, you know, at the time when no one wants to go. Um, and to run a service at Parramatta, he had to get up at four to be rowed up um, Port Jackson up to Parramatta where it was so discouraging. He had some Bibles to hand out, he gave them to the convicts but they used them as toilet paper. It was hard. Um, how did the gospel come to Adelaide? Well, through Charles Beaumont Howard who again, like Richard Johnson, was an evangelical in England who put his hand up to go to the new colony. Um, and he was the first minister of Holy Trinity first chaplain of the colony. Uh, he died at age 36, I've told this story, because uh, someone in the hills <laughs> was sick and so he rode his horse up to visit them but was caught in a storm on the way back and caught pneumonia and died. You must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You know, we in the West are so adverse to risk, so prudent, and yet we can only exist because we stand on the shoulders of people who've suffered for the name of Jesus for the sake of future generations that we might believe. And we've got no reason to think it would be different for future generations from us who must stand on our shoulders as well. Think of those who first brought the gospel to you. What hardships did they know in their life? And they kept doing it and speaking of Jesus, so that you would be built up. The fruit of gospel ministry is the planting of churches, and every time we do it, it's risky, and it's hard, and it involves cost, but that is what we need to do, and Paul leaves us with three gifts, apostolic teaching, and elders, and committing them to God. We'll praise God for those gifts and that God's committed to build his church and to keep opening the door of faith. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Paul. Thank you that he didn't turn, didn't kind of leave and just give up. He kept going. He endured hardship. And we praise you, although, we praise you for the gospel message which brings life and salvation and unity to all who believe. Uh, it's terrible that because of our hearts, it divides as well. But loving God, help us to be under no illusion that this is just reality and help us therefore to be prepared to suffer in the same way for the gospel that Jesus suffered and that Paul suffered and so many have since. Because this is what life is about. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd recalibrate our expectations and also through us and through this church, the gospel would keep on advancing. 
to your praise and your glory, the one who is to be worshipped. Amen.